Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for January 2nd, 2018. That's right, the first episode of 2018. On today's show, we're going to be diving into a bunch of news, including Bright's viewership, the possibility of Apple buying Netflix, the gigantic expectations for Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom's action scenes, John Williams joined Solo, A Star Wars Story, and AMC could start charging different prices for seats within the same theater. Uh, and in our feature presentation, uh, Ben Pearson is going to talk about his top 10 films of 2017. Uh, this is Peter Sroda, and joining me on today's podcast is, you'd never guess it, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Not much. Uh, uh, New Year's just happened. Uh, What did you do over the New Year's break? So this is the first time in a long time where my wife and I didn't even we weren't even in front of a television watching the ball drop. Normally, we like at least we'll have it on in the background if we're hanging out at home and, and, you know, drinking and hanging out with with friends and stuff like that. Sometimes we'll go out to a bar near our place or whatever. This time, uh, like we were talking about on one of our recent episodes, uh, I got a bunch of board games from her for Christmas. So we actually ended up spending the whole night playing uh, Seven Wonders Duel on New Year's Eve and finished like right before the ball dropped so the timing was pretty perfect on that people say that's one of the best two-player games of all time did you enjoy it 
Yeah, it was a lot to to uh, process in the beginning as far as like how the rules worked and, and you know, what uh, <laughs> what the game mechanics were actually like. And especially for us, be- because we don't really come from we're not really board game savvy in that way. In the, in this sort of, uh, you know, new golden era, golden age era of uh, board games. This is we're sort of like just dipping our toe into that. So um, and you're, you know. you're at a disadvantage as well, because, you know, there is a game called Seven Wonders, which is extremely popular. And this came out after that game, kind of like being the two-player version of that game, because that game right. is good with a lot of players, up to seven, but not good with two players. And uh, basically, I think they assumed that most people had played that game before jumping into this game. So I think you were at a double disadvantage. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. But, you know, and and like, it's just two of us, and half the time we're like rereading the rules over and over, like, wait, what happens now? What happens in this case? But by the end of the time, we got it, and it's really fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to finally diving into it um you know now that we fully comprehend exactly how everything is supposed to go down so uh yeah that was that was my new year's eve what did you do and i feel like that was my experience when i start, first started getting into board gaming every game i played was like i didn't understand it didn't understand it and then the last like third of the game understood it and i was like yeah i need to play that again <laughs> like <laughs> and uh all my friends were always onto the newest greatest thing so i never got to play it again so uh, anyways um what, what did i do i didn't do anything like extremely interesting i went to the magic castle um had a lot of fun there we saw some great magic and um and uh you know they they oh they had a a casino there so you could uh bet with fake money and the person you know had the most money at the end of the night would get you know a huge gift card to be spent there on food and drinks and stuff and uh i lost all my money so i did that 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 did not happen um and uh at the end of the night they were supposed to give a free uh champagne toast you know to the new year's but uh kitra my girlfriend and i uh we're we're tired around like ten thirty, and we're like let's just go home. <laughs> so <laughs> so we left early and uh, finished off watching uh, another season of Survivor, which I know people listening to this podcast probably are sick of me talking about. But uh, I just watched Game Changers, which was the season before uh, this past season that just aired, and it had uh, a lot of people in it, it, it from previous seasons who had made huge moves that changed the game and uh it, it was it was a really good season it was a very enjoyable and it's a uh, survivor the, the thing i'm finding it's it gets better the more seasons you you watch of it because um it's it's really a show you wouldn't think it because you'd think it's like really just disposable you know reality television mm-hmm. but it's a show that really is contingent on you having watched previous seasons and knowing who people are and and uh understanding the stakes and how the game is played because it doesn't walk you through that like when mm-hmm. when when it's getting up to a point and there's like you know a, you know an idol in the game and you know all the stuff it, it doesn't like baby hand you and for a show that's on like a network a network like cbs it's actually kind of shocking that uh you know it doesn't kind of uh explain things more but um yeah i mean i guess it has such a history behind it they assume that there are so many people that have seen it you know been watching for 20 years or whatever it's been yeah um, but anyways, uh, we, we weren't going to do a proper water cooler segment, but I guess this turned into a water cooler <laughs> of sorts. Uh, let's jump into the news. Uh, first off, let's talk about Netflix's Bright. Last time we talked about it, uh, we were talking about the Rotten Tomato scores, which were very low. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of people didn't seem to like uh, Netflix's first big film project. And uh, now we have some idea of how it did on the streaming platform. Ben, what do we know? 
Yeah, so in the first three days of Netflix's release of Bright, uh, a new report says that over 11 million people tuned in to watch this thing. So um, just to sort of give people uh, some semblance of what that means, uh, 15.8 million views uh, of Stranger Things 2 occurred over that same sort of three-day period, like the, the three days following its initial release. Um, only 3 million people watched the season premiere of uh, The Crown Season 2. So, you know, it's, it's sort of in between in there at, at 11 million people. But that's a, a lot of people tuning in to watch this Will Smith orc movie. Uh, I was not one of them. Peter, have you actually seen Bright? No, I have not. And I've heard reactions, you know, all over the place. You know, one of my good friends said he actually really enjoyed it. So uh, I don't know. I, I, I kind of, you know, every time I hear a good reaction, I hear three others that, you know, people that hated it. Right. But I almost feel like this is the kind of project that people went into wanting to dislike. I'm not I'm not saying that it's probably good. I'm just saying it, it's it had this attitude going into it that people kind of wanted to take it down. It seemed. Well, I mean, yeah, you've got David Ayer, the director of Suicide Squad, which was famously hated by a lot of people. And in my opinion, rightly so. And then you've got Max Landis, who, of course, is like a controversial personality in and of himself, uh, sort of teaming up for. Uh, <laughs> a movie that sounds like uh, I, I think there was a lot of controversy right after it came out from like Chance the Rapper and all these people about how uh, the film's allegorical messages of of like race relations and, and stuff like that were not exactly handled very well. And again, neither of us have seen this movie, but um, yeah, I, I'm I saw I think it was David Chen who hosts the Slash Filmcast said on Twitter that the only way he would watch Bright is if he watched it like on DVD, so Netflix uh, couldn't track the fact that he was watching. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I, I'm sort of of that opinion. Like, I'm a little bit curious, but I would never give uh, Netflix the satisfaction of letting them know that their algorithm hooked me in that way. I don't want to reward, uh, you know, what is said to be a, a pretty bad movie. I think it has a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. So, um you know, again, just in comparisons, uh, you know, going all the way back to another original Netflix movie, Adam Sandler's The Ridiculous Six was supposed to be like the most watched Netflix movie ever after its first month. So the fact that 11 million people tuned into Bright um, does not necessarily speak to the film's quality. It just means that a lot of people tuned into it in its first three days. And it should be mentioned, like 11 million is not, you know, a small number. You know, you, you hear these hundreds of millions of dollars in the box office, but those people are paying, you know, 10 11 12 more per ticket in Star Wars I think we did the the math Star Wars Last Jedi sold 11 million to uh, million tickets this past weekend mm -hmm. Jumanji sold 6.5 or 6.15 million tickets so uh that gives you some indication of you know more people watched bright than you know paid to go see Jumanji of course it's not a similar thing because you know people are you, you have to pay $15 or $10 to go to the theater to see Jumanji where most people probably already have a Netflix subscription mm -hmm. but um but I mean that kind of shows that like in, in a sense of um it impacting popular culture and having uh you know similar eyes that are in i mean i would even say more than similar like if if there wasn't a movie like star wars last jedi in theaters this would have been the most watched movie this weekend Do you know yeah I, mean? I think i think that's true and and you know netflix has got to feel good about giving bright to a green light because they did that before they even had access to 
these numbers. Um, and I guess I should mention that these numbers come from Nielsen, which is the company that has been responsible for measuring TV viewership over the past 60 plus years. Um, that is not exactly aligned with Netflix's uh, specific statistics because Nielsen is like a, uh, I guess like a, an amalgamation of um, estimates and all sorts of st things like that, but it's probably a pretty close yeah. number. Ne Netflix doesn't want people to know what the actual numbers are it's, to the extent that Netflix doesn't integrate itself with Apple's TV's What's uh, Next uh, TV app because mm. they don't even want Apple to know what people are watching on Netflix. So like, wow. it, 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 to, to that extent, um, in Netflix, I mean, obviously Nielsen has been around for, for a long time. Usually they have a set top box or they or people that are Nielsen families will record what they watch into a book. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, uh, hundreds or thousands of families that, you know, are indicative for the millions. Uh, right. So it's not a uh, perfect science, but it's the same numbers that, yeah, as you said, you know, every week when we hear those ratings, those aren't coming from the studios or from the networks. Those are coming from Nielsen. Yep. So, yeah. But uh, talking about Netflix, uh, there is now a report from City Analyst saying that there's a strong chance that Apple will buy Netflix. Um you know, obviously, we've talked about this in the past. I've, I've said, wh why didn't this happen already? You know, mm -hmm. Disney should have bought Netflix or, ne or Apple should have bought Netflix. Both of them have enough money to do so. And it, that tends to be what the analysts are, are talking about here. They're, they're basically uh, saying that, you know, Apple uh, has enough money. And there's also, you know, uh, some different uh, some changes uh, going on in um taxes and what trump's doing and basically uh they have a lot of money overseas and there's going to be a it, it's a really complicated issue but basically it's going to make it easier for them to bring the money back into america mm -hmm. um so uh you know they're basically saying well, what what is the best thing that they could possibly do with it and they're they're predicting that apple could buy netflix of course you know, this doesn't come from any actual deal going on. This doesn't come from any leak. You know, Apple has not formally, as far as we know, contacted Netflix to tr try to acquire them. But uh, it seems like, you know, Apple wants to get into the streaming game and the original content game. It seems like this would be easier than them starting their own thing, which they've been trying to do. Ben, what are your yeah. thoughts on this? It definitely would be because that's been the big thing. I've been sort of on the Apple original content beat at Slashfilm. I've written a bunch of articles about the shows that they've been sort of going after and the ones that they've actually, um, you know, acquired so far. And it, the the one uh, factor that has remained the same over all of these stories over the past couple months at this point has been that we nobody knows exactly how Apple is going to make these shows available for people. So if they were to buy Netflix they would have the infrastructure already for them to, you know, produce these shows in-house or, or um, you know, to sort of, you know, have ownership over these shows and then just funnel them straight onto Netflix, which is obviously doing really well in terms of getting uh, people's eyes in front of, of uh, visual products like this. So I, I, I'm not sure what their alternative is going to be. You know, there's been a lot of speculation about whether or not they'll use the TV app um, that sort of comes along with, uh, you know, on phones and iPads and Apple TVs or whatever, or if they're going to use Apple Music, like sort of uh, shift that that program, that app's, uh, uh, I guess, priorities into becoming a hub for their original content. But nobody really knows at this point. So um, it seems to me that if uh, Apple is going to buy Netflix, 
that is that process is going to take so long that the shows that they've already announced will have to be released in some fashion before that actually goes into effect. But uh, I don't know. What do you think, Peter? I, I don't know. Uh, I, I really don't know. It, it just seems like a smart move. And, it, you know, I want to give you the numbers. The, it, Apple has nearly $250 billion in the bank, and they're growing at $50 billion a year. And uh, to buy Netflix, it would only cost them $75 billion. Um, wow. Which, which is an insane price considering, you know, Disney bought Star Wars for what a couple billion? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, maybe four. Yeah, and four then... billion. Yeah, like th- those numbers are insane. And you know, th- I think their biggest acquisition, I think, was Beats with three billion uh, in 2014. But uh, I don't know. We're gonna have to watch this. See, it, it, eventually, I think you know, three companies are gonna own everything. So yeah, it seems like it's going that way. Uh, moving on to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the filmmakers have been doing some international press for this upcoming movie that hits theaters this summer. Um, and uh, they're talking about the action in this upcoming film. What are they saying, Ben? Yes, director J.A. Bayona, who's taking over from uh, Colin Trevorrow, says that Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, his quote is, Fallen Kingdom starts with a massive action piece that feels like a James Bond prologue. And in the center, there is the biggest set piece ever done for a Jurassic movie. So that was his quote. Uh, It is possible that the biggest set piece ever done for a Jurassic movie is something that we've already seen in the most recent trailer, which is the volcano eruption and Chris Pratt's character sort of running away with a bunch of dinosaurs sort of right there, you know, hot on his heels and Bryce Dallas Howard and Justice Smith uh, inside one of the gyrospheres from the first Jurassic World rolling toward a cliffside. That seems, you know, uh, on a scope level, pretty damn big and, and bigger than a lot of the stuff that we've seen before. So it's possible that that could be the uh, the sequence that he's referencing there. It could be something entirely different because we know that everything that appears in that first trailer only takes place during the first 57 minutes of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So it could be Universal is holding back on, uh, you know, some stuff that we haven't seen yet. So um, I think the question is, is this a good is this a good thing, Peter? Does the Jurassic World franchise need to go bigger or should it uh, sort of get a little bit more introspective and, and small scale? Well, you know what? I, I am a fan of Jurassic World. So take that uh, for what it's worth. And yeah, me um, too. The uh, I, I do want to say that it, it seems exciting that they are trying to go in new places with this franchise, that obviously they're trying to get off this island and um, they are trying to, you know, show us something we've never seen. We've never seen like a disaster kind of film sequence on this level in, in this franchise. And, you know, I don't want to pretend that I know where this is going, but we see some photos of them on a ship and they're trying to get, get dinosaurs to ship or something. Um, and I think Colin Trevorrow has even said that, like, you know, this film is going to go big and then go smaller, um, which is interesting to me because some of the best sequences in the Jurassic Park franchise were kind of like these thrilling scenes, like the kitchen scene in Jurassic Park, uh, you know, that scene on the side of the ledge in the van in, in Lost World. And it seems to me that having all this huge action up front means that they don't have to have this big tentpole sequence where, you know, the world is ending and whatever at the end of the, you know, the Marvel film, you know, big 
you know, <laughs> that thing at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. It seems like they can get smaller and go to this ship with dinosaurs. And maybe dinosaurs are escaping. And, you know, you have more of like this these thrilling moments. That seems exciting to me. Yeah, yeah. I really hope that that's the case. Um, I, I was sort of wondering if if maybe that that's signaling a direction uh, in a shift in direction for potentially the third movie in this franchise to get a little bit smaller, because I think you're right. I think the original Jurassic Park, you know, it has memorable set pieces, but it's also relatively contained uh, and it's more about survival, right? It's not necessarily about huge spectacle moments. So um, hopefully the uh, Jurassic World franchise will sort of get back into that groove and, uh, and you know, have like these character-centric suspenseful scenes that uh, recall the original. It, it, I think the most exciting thing about this is, is what people are saying about Star Wars. You know, what Ryan Johnson did with Last Jedi and going forward, we don't know what where it's going. It, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of going in this complete different direction. And I think that's what excites me about this is – Taking it off the island, I have no idea where it's going. Like, I don't think they're going to build another park in the U.S. Or do you know what I mean? Like, right, yeah. like I feel like that's not in the the in the plans for the future of this franchise. We're, we're done with this theme park, so it, it's exciting to me that we're going to go in different directions. And uh, what that is, I don't know. But um, yeah. But moving on to a uh, Star Wars story that hit over the weekend, and that is that John Williams is going to return to Star Wars composing a theme for solo a star wars story um this is interesting for a variety of reasons because i i think previously um kathleen kennedy the head of lucasfilm has kind of said that the the standalone stories were kind of be kind of be the the way of uh having filmmakers and auteurs like do their own thing within this galaxy and present things in different ways we could have star wars movies without the star wars theme and you know not have an opening crawl and them going back to uh john williams seems to, to represent for me at least uh kind of um you know, a change in that philosophy. Uh, but John Williams is not going to do the whole score. He is a, uh, he, he's an aging man, right? And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't have time to, to do the whole score. John Powell is going to write the score, but John Williams is going to do a new version of the Han Solo uh, theme for the film. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this, Ben? I mean, it just seems like a cool thing. Uh, I, I think John Powell, I think you're right. I think there there is a lot of opportunity for uh, different voices to come in, especially in these uh, a Star Wars story side films and establish a whole new uh, vibe and aesthetic, you know, that's a little bit different than the, the Skywalker saga main main story. But, uh, you know, Han Solo and that theme, because this character is so... Um, indelible in pop culture and John Williams has such a, a lasting link to that. I, th- I just think it's cool that Lucasfilm is taking advantage of the fact that Williams is not only still around, but he's still, you know, making vibrant contributions to the Star Wars mythos. His score for The Last Jedi is incredible. So I'm glad that he's coming back in some capacity, even if it's just, uh, you know, essentially is like a John Williams cameo, musically speaking. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. That's actually very cool. We've been talking a lot about the future of movie theaters, movie pass, all that. AMC is 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 at the center of that discussion because they're one of the biggest movie theater chains out there and they are apparently considering a different pricing model where you'd cost you more money to sit in the premium seats in a theater and less money to sit on the outliers. So Ben, what do we know about this? 
Yeah, so we got an email last week from a reader who is a member of the AMC Stubbs Reward Program, and the the reader was basically telling us about this survey that AMC sent out to some of its members, and that basically the the survey asked members where they like to sit in the theater and if they would be willing to pay more or less money for more desirable seats or less desirable seats. And then also we saw on Twitter that somebody else received that same survey. Um, you know, we should say right now that this is just at this stage, this is just AMC uh, putting feelers out there and sort of uh, maybe doing a little R&D and, and some test work. This is not something that has been put into practice for them quite yet. But for a major theater chain like this to be exploring new ways to make money, it makes a lot of sense, especially considering that, you know, um, I guess general audience attendance in, in movie theaters has been on a downturn for the past two years. So, you know, it's something that AMC executives are certainly looking at, finding new ways to get people into theaters. So one of those ways conceivably could be to charge less money for seats in the front row, for example, or seats like on the aisle or something like that, and to charge a little bit more money for prime seats, which are presumably in the middle of every aisle or in the middle of the theater or, uh, you know, spots where the sound is best optimized in the theater, things of this this nature. Um, when we published this story, Peter, I know that we got a lot of responses from international uh, listeners and, and readers who say that this practice is already in place uh, overseas. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I, I've been to movies in London where this uh, was in practice, where like the the middle like five rows or something like that were kind of roped off and, uh, you know, had uh you know you choose your own seat for those rows but it's general admission for the rest and it's a cheaper general admission price um, yeah i had no idea about that that's cool but uh, what, what do you think about this do you think that this is something that uh, okay let's do it in two parts do you think that this is something that amc is actually going to institute soon and then is that a good thing or a bad thing well i could definitely see them trying to institute this because this means they can charge more for those premium seats uh the problem here is a lot of amc theaters nationwide i know in in la we have some theaters that have um you can reserve your own seat like your particular seat in the theater mm-hmm. um but nationwide that's not kind of the thing it, it's still general admission to their to their theaters and the the reason why i i have heard it's not technology it's because uh, you know, it requires a cost of having more employees to actually police that. You know, you need to have an employee in the theater, like if there's a problem, if someone's in someone else's seat and whatnot. Uh-huh. So uh, I'm just wondering if this is something that could be done on a national scale. This could definitely be easily implemented into like AMC Century City, which is in L.A., uh, which already has like, you know, reserve seating. I could, I could definitely see that. Um, but AMC seems to be a company that seems to cut corners and prices at, at, at any possible opportunity so i'm not sure right. if it's it's possible what what do you think i mean for me it seems like these theater chains could be spending their time and money coming up with new <laughs> and better ways to convince people to spend their time and money at theaters like make the experience better you know like do simple things like um you know, actually put some consequences into place for people who are just on their phones the whole time or talking or whatever. Like there are but so many that, different that ways. That requires more employees, though. That's the problem. I know, but that's yeah. I guess I guess it's just 
this seems like a very short-sighted thing to me. You know, it, it seems like, and again, I'm not an executive. Maybe there are people who who have run numbers and crunched all this stuff, and and they're you know they've discovered that this is what they need to do to survive in the short term. But it just seems like such short tight short-sighted uh, uh, strategy because it's like they are they don't want to lose money instead of figuring out how to make more. Um, and this just seems like a way where they're like, uh, what can we do? What can we do? It just, it's sort of reeks of desperation to me. I don't know. I, I could see this working if those like middle premium seats were actually like a premium experience where you get like recliners and it, you know, more room and it feels, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. If, yeah. If, if, if it's that kind of thing, but if it's the same, you know, chairs as everywhere else, but it's, right. it's just a higher price that that seems kind of like a big fu to AMC customers. Yeah, yeah. definitely. But let's uh, let's let's go from the news and dive into our future presentation, which is your top ten movies of 2017, which we published on the site uh, earlier today. Um, so I, I guess probably let's let's just start at number ten. Um, or actually, do you have any um, overall thoughts on this year in movies? Man, this has been a really great year for movies. I think everyone can agree that 2017 was a, a dumpster fire of a year in <laughs> almost every other way. But uh, in terms of movies, there were so many that I left off my list that I think you could form a, a whole separate top 10 with you know things in my honorable mentions or things that I didn't even get to, um, and that would be you know just as uh, as impressive or valid or whatever as the movies that are on my list now. Um, what did you think about the year? Uh, at large yeah um this year has been a good year for big films i think um i think generally usually at the end of the year we're talking about these smaller independent films and a lot of these films on your top 10 list and on mine and a lot of the people's on the sites are kind of some bigger budget films um so i think we're seeing that trend a little bit more um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, these studios are doing, I think, more kind of uh, smarter films. We, we should start that off with your number 10, which is War for the Planet of the Apes. Yes, I love this movie. Uh, I know you've talked about it at length uh, on this podcast and elsewhere about how you think it's like one of the best cinematic trilogies of all time. I'm right there with you. I think uh, Matt Reeves is really at the top of his game as a director and Andy Serkis's performance as Caesar is terrific in this film. Um, the way that it, it brings this trilogy to a close is so satisfying and you know, this is the first time I, I remember in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, the terribly named second installment of this trilogy. Uh, it opens with um, a, a super close up, super tight uh, close up of Caesar's eyes. And it's almost Matt Reeves like daring you to believe that that this guy, that this ape is a, a sentient creature that, you know, is talking and, and has all these, you know, this high intellect. This movie doesn't really it, it seems like Reeves is not as concerned with uh, with making you believe it. He just sort of takes it for granted. And and the movie's technology has reached a point where it, that that approach is justified. I think it, it everything looks so seamless in this movie. The effects are tremendous. The story is great. Uh, man, I just love this film. And you mentioned the the titles of the films, and even this film, I think, is is not that great of a title. You you, you look at the posters for the film, and it shows this big like epic confrontation between the the apes and the humans and that that kind of isn't even really a scene in the movie yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but uh yes I, I agree it's one of the top of the year uh let's move on to your number nine and that is stephen king's it 
Yes, man, this was so great. Uh, I read Stephen King's book right before the first trailer came out, so I was already really hyped for this movie, and it delivered on my excitement and expectations in the best possible way. Um, I have to admit that I thought it was going to be a huge mistake to only tell half of the story because the book intertwines the tales of the kids and then them later on as adults. And, you know, reading the book, that is such a core aspect of it in the way that those two timelines uh, bounce off each other and and sort of uh, intertwine in the book um, works so wonderfully that I was a little hesitant at the idea of it only being half the story in the movie. But uh, really phenomenal casting and uh, director Andy Muschietti and his sort of uh, really um, tactile and eerie sensibilities, I think, justified the notion of uh, of telling the story in two parts. So I'm very excited to see uh, it chapter two. And I think um, the first one delivered on pretty much everything I wanted uh, in an adaptation of this story. See, my worry now is is the second chapter with the adults going to be interesting because I feel like the child story is, is the better story there. Uh, I think you're probably right. And that is, you know, part of the reason why I really wanted them to do both uh, to start. But I think um, Muschietti, he added a couple elements that were sort of some interesting touches to, uh, to this uh, first it movie in order to sort of pad it out a little bit. So I'm just going to, hope and and be optimistic that whatever he adds to pad out the second story is just as good and weird and interesting uh and and will hopefully uh, elevate the adult side of the story as well now it is not the only horror film on your list your number seven or number eight rather is get out yeah and this is a movie or i guess horror is a genre that i'm not even like particularly a huge fan of but i think uh jordan peele really burst onto the scene in a huge way with Get Out earlier this year. I mean, this, or I guess last year now. Um, the movie came out in February, and, like, we're still talking about it, and it still feels as, you know, vibrant and, and relevant uh, right now as it did the second it was released. Um, this social horror thriller aspect of uh, of Peel's work, I mean, this thing, it, it has so many different layers to it and, and rich metaphors to parse through, um, you know, beyond just being a super entertaining and suspenseful movie, like, on the surface. So I think... There, there really is a lot, um, a lot of uh, of praise that should be um, showered on Jordan Peele for coming up with a great premise and then actually executing it uh, in in such an entertaining and thrilling way his first time around. So uh, I was very, very impressed with Get Out this year. See, I feel like I'm in the minority here. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that I, I think Get Out is is a very good film, a very good horror film, but like it's. I feel like the themes and uh, the metaphors are better than than it is as either a horror film or a comedy film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, uh, I agree with that. And I guess that's the, that is actually the aspect that elevates the movie as a whole for me. But it sounds like it didn't quite do that for you. Yeah, not, not quite. But uh, let's move on to your number seven. And this is a movie that I don't think is on a lot of people's top tens. It, it was marketed as a film that was going to be kind of an awards contender at the end of the year. And that is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yes, I am a big fan of writer-director Martin McDonough. And um, I, I think a part of that is because his movies often feel like they are written to me, but in the best way. Um, I love his characters. I love the way that he uh, sort of drops in little bursts of violence or really sort of off-the-wall comedy. Um, Three Billboards, I think, is 
the culmination of a lot of the stuff that he's done in his other movies, like in Bruges and uh, Seven Psychopaths. Um, Francis McDormand uh, has this lead performance that is just uh, fearsome and really um, an incredible uh, encapsulation of a lot of the rage that a lot of people felt last year, especially women. And I loved Sam Rockwell and his supporting turn, totally against type, you know, not remotely like anything else that he's ever done. Uh, this is a challenging movie, and I know that it, it has experienced a critical backlash since it's been released, but I still find it to be really, really rewarding. And I think I, I don't know if I saw a better written film uh, in 2017 than Three Billboards. Yeah, I, I love what Rockwell does in this film. And I love uh, I love stories where you have a protagonist and a uh, antagonist that maybe uh, morally switch places at times. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, that, that's what I liked about that film. But let's move on to your number six, and that is The Shape of Water. And what a movie! Um, I this is one that I, I like the more I think about it. I, I came out of it being like, okay, yeah, that was pretty good. But I think I've like really fallen in love with it um, in the weeks since seeing it. Uh, Del Toro's movie, Guillermo Del Toro, wrote and directed this film. Uh, his movies um, are sort of hit or miss for me. Uh, like Pacific Rim, I could you know I could I would be fine if I never saw Pacific Rim again in my life. But I really like Pan's Labyrinth a lot. Um, just to sort of give people a sense of of my appreciation for his past work. And I think this movie might be his best one. Um, Sally Hawkins is tremendous. Doug Jones is really great, but Richard Jenkins and his, uh, his character subplot, um, in this movie, which I won't spoil in case you haven't seen the film yet is, uh, is really the beating heart of the movie to me. I know that a lot of people love this film for the romance aspect. Everybody knows that it's about a, a mute woman who falls in love with a fish man, but I, I think it says a lot about this movie that I didn't even really buy into that relationship that much, but I still came away uh, loving the movie. And it's because of every other thing about that film. Um, The production design is so gorgeous. And uh, Del Toro is just a master filmmaker. There's no other way to say it. Yeah, I I think I love the beauty of the film, the cinematography, the production design, you know, all that more than I really, you know, fell in love with the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that film will not make my top 10. Um, I think it, it narrowly hit number 11. Um, nice. Let's move on to your number five, which is The Disaster Artist. Yes, and this is one I've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast before. Uh, I interviewed a lot of the filmmakers and stuff, so you can check out that coverage at SlashFilm.com. But, uh, and I think you, Peter, have been talking a little bit about it um, in, I guess, just the past couple weeks, uh, you know, in, especially in relation to Brigsby Bear, which I finally caught up with and really liked. Uh, it's just I saw that, like, right before New Year's, so that was pretty cool. But, um, yeah, I, I really, really, really love James Franco's The Disaster Artist. I think uh, this is a movie that is about... About, uh, this codependent relationship between Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero and it's more than just about the making of this infamously terrible cult movie The Room it's about this toxic relationship that forms with these guys who encourage each other and tear each other down in equal measure um, the Francos are both really really good but Dave Franco I think deserves uh, a lot more attention that he he's getting I know that um James is is uh, actually, I think, in a lot of awards conversations for the sort of flamboyant performance that he he gives as Tommy Wiseau. But I think Dave Franco's Greg Sestero is actually the more difficult character to play because he's sort of the straight man opposite uh, the much more um, larger than life personality there. Um, 
also it's important to say this is a comedy and this movie was really really funny and that a lot of times doesn't happen for me anyway i feel like a lot of studio comedies i don't really connect with as much as you know other people around me sitting in the theater but i think i laughed more in the disaster artist than in anything else last year no, uh, I I agree with most of what you're saying. I, I do think that Dave Franco's performance is better than James in this film. Uh, James, at times, it felt like more of an imitation than a performance. But uh, I don't know. Maybe I, I, I did not love this film as much as you, as we've discussed ad nauseum already. Uh, <laughs> but uh, number four on your list, Star Wars The Last Jedi. Oh, my God, man, there is so much movie in this movie. And Ryan Johnson, (laughs) the writer director, just takes huge swings left and right. And I think uh, when he connects with those, it it delivers in a way that nothing else in Star Wars history ever has for me. Um, There are, as we've said, a bunch, you know, super high highs uh, in this film that are maybe, you know, this film contains probably five or six of my favorite moments in Star Wars movie history. Um, It is clear to me that Johnson really, really loves these characters and this mythology and everything that the film is saying about, um, you know, being inspired and learning from the past, but also moving forward and building on and and sort of creating something new um, really resonated with me. I think that the way the thematic messages of this film, um, it, it blew me away that all of this stuff could fit in what is supposed to be quote unquote, supposed to be just a brainless, you know, uh, massive $200 million studio blockbuster kind of thing. I I feel like it's way smarter, like you mentioned, and and sort of uh, calling back to War for the Planet of the Apes. It's a way smarter blockbuster than we've gotten in uh, in recent years. I feel like I've said enough about this film. So we're just going to move on to (laughs) number three. And that is the big sick. Yes, this is another one that uh, was on my list of favorite movies of the first half of the year and is definitely stuck through all the way, uh, you know, to to this point. Um, It is relatable. It is heartbreaking. It is also laugh out loud funny. It's definitely one of the most purely enjoyable times at the movie theater I had in the entire year. Uh, Kumail Nanjiani and... um, and Zoe Kazan are tremendous in the lead roles, but also uh, the actors who play Kumail's parents in the film and then uh, Ray Romano and Holly Hunter, who play Emily's parents in the film, are so great. And spending time with those families, um, it just it it makes this movie so well-rounded and so much more than just a traditional romantic comedy. Uh, I love this movie. If you've not seen it yet and you <laughs> have heard us raving about it all year on Slash Film, uh, do yourself a favor and check it out. Yeah, if if you have not seen this film, you should shut off this podcast and go right now to is it on Amazon Prime, I think. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, go to Amazon Prime and watch it right now. Uh the number 2 film on your list, I'm kind of surprised at, and that is Pixar's Coco. Yes, I am surprised at it as well. I loved this movie. And this is a film that I went into being like, ah, I'm not really sold on this concept. I it, to me it felt a little bit like potentially um exploitative or or uh maybe just disney sort of checking a box in order to uh reach out to uh you know a niche audience or something like that but that is such a um 
a an unfortunate <laughs> view to go into this movie because this film is full of heart. It is one of the most gorgeously animated, you know, visually dazzling movies in Pixar history. Uh, it is an incredible movie. I, I was openly weeping at the end of this film. The music is terrific. Um, the story is so, so good. And walking out of it, you really feel that they spent years crafting this thing to get it, you know, honed down into this pitch perfect, uh, uh, I guess, encapsulation of, of the story that they've been working on all this time. It's like it's all of the fat has been trimmed away and you're just left with this prime cut. Um, and I, I think I really think that decades from now, we're going to look back on Coco as one of the best movies in Pixar history. Oh, wow. Jeez. Uh, you know, I've seen this film three times now, which is probably the most I've seen for any film this year thus far. And um, the first time I saw it, I didn't love it. Uh, I've, it's it's grown in my heart. And uh, I think I love the beginning and the end. Most of all, I think the middle is a little, uh, I don't know. It, it's just a little more to be desired for me. Uh, and I, I do think is is emotionally involved, I, I do get in this film. And I think it does pack that emotional punch that you expect from a Pixar film that uh, – I think part of the problem, I, you know, I've been talking in the podcast about uh, us um, uh, putting uh, us uh, putting power in surprises over storytelling, and I think this film at times puts puts too much effort into the surprise over the storytelling, and could have accomplished those ideas a little bit uh, smoother. But I'm not going to get into that without getting into spoilers. Let's go on to your number one. Which <laughs> Agree is... to disagree, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go on to number one, which is The Post. Oh, my God. This movie, man. I mean, we talked about it uh, in our initial reactions episode uh, after we first saw this film. But Steven Spielberg is not a director that <laughs> needs any more praise. So I almost feel bad putting this as my number one. But the movie just swept me away more than anything else did in 2017. It feels, and I said it before, I said it, I'll say it again. It feels so essential, so important and in the best way and not not just in like an Oscar baity kind of way, but in a way where Spielberg really tapped into the pulse of what is happening or what was happening in 2017. And he used the clout and, and uh, you know, the cachet, the cultural cachet that he has to turn in a movie that feels like it's speaking directly to, it's like a response to a lot of the news stories that we saw in that truly terrible year um and i think not only does it work for being this really um well-crafted response but it's also just a hell of a, a you know a riveting movie by itself like take away the relevance angle of it it has excellent performances this sucker moves the pacing in this movie is amazing and um it's got a tremendous performance from Bob Odenkirk in, in a supporting role, which is always great to see. Um, it's something that I'm reminded of what Chris said when he first saw the film, which is that uh, Meryl Streep in this movie, it, it makes you it reminds you what um, you know, how she can make greatness look effortless. <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of times Meryl Streep performances seem like they get uh, critically lauded just because she's Meryl Streep. But I feel like in this movie, she actually deserves the the praise that she's getting for her performance. Tom Hanks is always solid. Um, and man, this movie is just, uh, it's, it's got a stellar cast. It's so relevant. And, uh, I think it's, it stands right there alongside get out as one of the defining movies of 2017 for me. 
I feel like, um, and I, after seeing this film, I had this impression that it was going to be this way, that critics are kind of uh, putting this film higher than audiences, I think. And I think it might be that critics, you know, come from a place of a writer and writing at publications. And, you know, the, it, you know this film, just like uh, Spotlight, kind of, you know, has an importance on our, our, our on our how we play in history right right yeah so uh but yeah that was a a great list uh do you have any honorable mentions yeah a few that i'll uh mention really quickly uh i don't feel at home in this world anymore has a terrific performance by melanie linsky which should not be overlooked so if you have not seen that film it's on netflix uh it sort of got dumped in the beginning of this year but it's really really good uh thor ragnarok i think was my favorite superhero movie of the year it's it's close there were actually a lot of really good superhero movies in 2017 um including including uh, Logan and Wonder Woman, which are also part of my honorable mentions list. Uh, Baby Driver, I had a lot of fun with. Uh, John Wick Chapter 2, there's there's a moment in that film that uh, is going to be with me for a long, long time, and I think it'll actually appear on our favorite moments of 2017 list um, in the coming days. And then uh, Your Name, which I talked about on the podcast that HT convinced me to watch this, uh, this <laughs> Japanese anime film, um, which I also ended up crying at. It was just, man, it's so emotional and powerful it's a really really great movie and then uh, Darren Aronofsky's mother is the last one that I wanted to give a shout out to that one almost made my list just because I don't think I talked about any other movie more (laughs) in person with people than mother this year because it's a movie that demands conversation right after you see it and I think my my wife and I after we saw it we spent longer than the runtime just talking about it like on the way home and then at home for like the next whatever two and a half hours or something so uh any movie that can do that is worth your time oh hundred percent and uh you can read ben's whole list he, he gets more in depth on all those movies on slash film.com you can find all the the news articles we mentioned today on slash film and in the show notes uh you can find this podcast slash film daily published on itunes google play overcast all the popular podcast apps please go to itunes give us a rating give us a review spread the word tell your friends and we'll be back tomorrow we're we're, we're now back to a daily schedule um until at least sundance uh which is coming up later this month and we'll figure that out when that happens but uh we will see you tomorrow <laughs>